All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Morning Report on the Neurology Exam Review Podcast from the Yale School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Jeff Dewey. I'm an assistant professor of neurology uh, with a specialty in neuromuscular medicine and an associate program director here at Yale. And I want to let our guests introduce themselves today, uh, starting with our guest attending, uh, Dr. Chris Gottschalk. How do you do, everybody? And thanks for inviting me. Um, I am currently the director of headache medicine and the section chief of general neurology at Yale. And I came to Yale to start up the headache medicine division about 10 years ago. And I'm very proud and happy, I have to say, that Yale embraced the idea of starting up headache medicine in an academic center. It was about a decade ago that the American Academy of Neurology and the American Headache Society got together and said it was time to get more academic centers on board with the idea of promoting headache medicine. And that has worked out very well, I think, for the program in general and our fellows and residents as well. I'm a UCNS certified headache medicine doc. I've been practicing headache medicine for about 20 years. I did my fellowship at Montefiore, the oldest headache unit in the country, and by some people's reckoning, the oldest headache program in the world, when I was just after my residency, uh, before there was such a thing as a formal headache training program. They put um, the uh, Fiore and Furoset, did they not? That's exactly right. Yeah. And most of our, we spent many, many years getting people on that drug, and now we spend most of our time trying to get people off it. You know, the fun thing about practicing medicine in the last couple of decades has been the extraordinary explosion in treatment and research and interest in it in the last 10 years. That's been something. Um, you asked me for a fun fact. I yes. will reveal the fact that I am an amateur mycologist, and I want to shout out to COMA, the Connecticut Mycological Association, which normally meets uh, every weekend and takes people on fascinating trips in different parts of Connecticut. And I think it's fair to say that mycology is still something that you can practice today at a safe social distance. Uh, spring is an excellent time to hunt for mushrooms, and it might be something to consider for people who are looking for a way to get outdoors. Excellent. That's wonderful. And I think we'll all recognize these next two voices. Uh, Drs. Trainer and McAlpine, you want to say hello? Hey, everyone. Um, so I'm Chris. Uh, one of the PGY4s uh, will be an epilepsy fellow at Yale next year and very excited to continue being here. And my fun fact, I guess, about Connecticut is I have been to all 47 of the Connecticut farm wineries and they are all delicious. Nice. Well done. And I'm Lindsay. I'm a PGY3. Um, and after next year, I'll be an MS fellow in Oregon. And my fun fact is I have two Labrador rescues, one named Magnolia, the other Willow. Awesome. Wonderful. All right. So Dr. Trina, you have the case for us today. Uh, why don't you and Dr. Gottschalk take it away? Awesome. So I have a 65-year-old female with past medical history of major depressive disorder on Lexapro who presented to an emergency room for an acute onset headache. Well... That's a great intro, and I will tell you that uh, it touches on one of the topics of migraine epidemiology that is near and dear to my heart, uh, and that is that the comorbidity of migraine is something that's very, very important to understand, and unfortunately, I think, is often misattributed or misunderstood. There is, in the field of cognitive biases and heuristics in medicine, there is something called the fundamental attribution error which is a commonly recognized problem that certain kinds of medical problems 
tend to be interpreted as the explanation for everything. And in the case of headache, I think this is a great illustration of that problem. I, I think it's fair to say that many doctors, when they hear a, a chief complaint like that, would say, oh, well, this is a patient with depression. Of course, they're coming in with a headache. Somatization is such a common problem in this group that we just have to get her good psychiatric care and she'll be fine. Whereas when we look a little bit further, we understand, I think, that the comorbidity of migraine is such that a very large percentage of patients who have migraine are predictably also affected by major depressive disorder and anxiety as well as epilepsy. And so that becomes simply a pattern that you that is common, that's predictable, and are multiple manifestations of probably an underlying biology. It's no surprise that anticonvulsants and, and, and tricyclic agents are effective for all of those disorders, not because depression causes headache, but because biologically they respond to similar kinds of modulation. So when I hear a story like that, I think primarily, uh-oh, this is somebody who's had to deal with two major problems that are related, and I hope I can help with the headache problem today, but I have a feeling that often it gets subsumed under the psychiatric rug. And so already we can shift our mindset a little bit. Uh, Chris, why don't you give us a brief summary of the history? Yeah, so she actually is someone who really had very infrequent headaches through her life. And so she, you know, described that she had had maybe two or three headaches in her entire life. She was 65, um, was not someone who was typically a complainer or dealing with pain, uh, things like that. But she and her husband um, had their, I think, 40th wedding anniversary and realized they were getting on in years and they decided to gift themselves for an anniversary uh, with a gym membership to try and stay active and fit together. And so she and her husband actually went uh, to work out with a personal trainer for the first time ever. Um, and she was doing uh, specific exercises uh, with the personal trainer for the first time. And during the exercise developed within 30 seconds, a 10 out of 10 bitemporal headache with severe photophobia that just kind of hit her out of nowhere. And again, her being someone who typically didn't deal with headaches was very scared and uh, understandably freaked out about what was going on. And so uh, at the recommendation of the personal trainer and also because she was freaking out, she was brought to the emergency room. Super. Well, so then there's, there's the kind of story that we, we want to use as an illustration of why it's important to know what the red flags of headache are or when it is that we have to think about secondary headache disorders or symptomatic headache problems as opposed to primary. Certainly for any headache doc, but also for neurologists in general, the, you know, the the, the major experience is that practically everything we see is migraine. Practically everything that comes across the table is really some variation on that. But it's important to recognize when something isn't. And so this story has all of those hallmarks. I uh, hope it's true that many of the listeners are familiar with what's called the SNOOP acronym uh, that was introduced probably 15 years ago by David Dodick out in the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. And that mnemonic includes very simple history elements that will readily identify features that need to be pursued. And here you have a couple of those. So older patients who haven't had a history of significant headache before 
onset in of maximal headache in a minute or two, or what we typically call thunderclap headache, and precipitants of headache-like exercise, any one of those, but certainly all three, should immediately raise the bar for looking into a secondary cause. So certainly this would bear consideration of aneurysmal headache, although exertional headache, while it is a disorder in and of itself, could also suggest something like a CSF pressure disorder, high or low. But certainly this is somebody who needs further workup. What was her exam like? Uh, yeah, so when she got to the ED, her blood pressure was 190 over 80. Her rest of her vital signs were within normal limits, uh, normal temperature, normal respiratory rate. She was setting well in room air. She was severely photophobic and very uncomfortable in the bed. So just like walking in the room, you know, the room had to be dark. If any light went anywhere near her, she would kind of scream in agony. She was very uncomfortable rolling around a lot trying to find a comfortable place. Her medical exam was all normal, no uh, cardiovascular abnormalities, no abdominal pain. Uh, Neurologically, um, she had uh, equal pupils, uh, EOMs were all intact, she had full facial sensation, no facial droop, uh, normal bulk and tone, her strength was 5 out of 5 in all four extremities. She had very, very slight decreased uh, vibratory sense over the right arm, uh, just but just the arm, not the leg. But she didn't notice it subjectively. It was really just ob- objective exam finding. But like to light touch and temperature, she felt that things were pretty equal. Coordination-wise, she had uh, intact finger, nose, finger. She was hyperreflexic in the uppers um, and normal reflexic in the lowers, had down-going toes, negative Hoffman's, didn't walk her given her extreme discomfort you know, in, in the bed. There's a lot of information there. I'll start with a question for the members of the group here, which is, you know, of the people that you've seen, say, in the emergency room setting with a headache, what percentage of them have this degree of sensitization of somebody who's actually needs to be lying in the dark and saying that, you know, any stimuli, particularly light, are really sending them through the roof? I would guess it's low, but I wonder what your estimate of that is. Very low. All the patients that I've seen that, you know, come in with severe migraine or whatever, the room is dimmed, but they'll still be holding their phone, you know. Um, I think the one case where I saw it was very severe was a posterior basilar type migraine, um, and she was particularly sensitized, but it's very uncommon and makes me think of more red flags. (laughs) No, exactly. So I think that's the, I think that's the point is that despite the pain ratings that you know people will give eight, nine, ten out of ten, it's actually pretty uncommon for someone to be have behavioral manifestations of that degree of sensitivity. And so I completely agree that that's a flag in and of itself is that this is either more severe or so unusual for them uh, that it that it really is an indicator of something. Uh, important or serious. I think some of that is that in a patient, a typical patient that we see with migraine, they've had a range of severity of attacks over 20 years, 30 years a lot of the time. So have learned to manage reporting that kind of pain, even though compared to other attacks, it might not be as severe or trying to convey something about the combination of symptoms that they have. Their pain may be bad, but it's also the nausea, the fatigue, the whatever else goes along with that. So the number may really reflect a kind of composite score 
of what they're really experiencing as opposed to the photophobia itself or something. But certainly this is a picture that uh, that is concerning. And then the subtleties there about vibratory loss and even asymmetry in the reflexes, I think that's you know a good argument for why it's helpful to have a neurologist around who's experienced with headaches because whereas headaches are so common that I think every doctor should be comfortable recognizing, diagnosing, and treating them, this is a case where those subtleties raise some important questions. Is this simply polyneuropathy that's muting the reflexes in the legs compared to the arms, perhaps, or is it an indicator of a Hearings that's giving you a, a, a superior to inferior asymmetry. All of those are possible, but things that we've seen. But along with the rest of the picture, says we need to know more about what's going on inside. Was she vomiting at all? She was not, no. Anything else pertinent in her social, family, medical history? No, like I said, her only medical history was the major depressive disorder for which she was on Lexapro. That was a medicine she had been taking for approximately a year or so. But otherwise, she had she denied any trauma, no family history of neurologic disease, um, headache disorders, any family members with headaches. And like I said, really no personal history of headaches or um, prior neurologic disease. Just one sec. Let's go back to the uh, exam there for a second. Did anybody look in her eyes or report that? Yeah. So I actually, this is a patient I saw. And yes, I did look in the eyes. And she had uh, uh, normal discs. Super. So I think that's, that is something that, you know, it's always worth mentioning that that really is one of the few things that should happen for every single patient that we see with acute headache, even the ones who may have a prior history. I'm particularly sensitized to that topic right now in the middle of the COVID pandemic because it's the one thing we can't do over a televisit and is, is you know, a major obstacle to screening new patients otherwise. But it's surprising how common it is for patients, I think, who are seen in the ER not to have that done simply by the ER staff, let alone by neurologists who get involved. So it's great that that did happen. And that's a, a major check mark in terms of working her up acutely. So then on to the next, what did we learn from testing? Yeah, so given her you know, presentation and kind of some of the things we already discussed, although she didn't use the words worst headache of life, it certainly to me sounded like a thunderclap headache. And we obviously took her for imaging rapidly. So she had a CT head. Um, as well as the CTA head and neck. Her CT head showed a 2.4 centimeter left parietal uh, intraparenchymal hemorrhage without midline shift or surrounding edema. And her CTA was read as negative, so there was no clear evidence of aneurysmal bleeding, any focal vascular abnormalities. She had no clots, so it was essentially a normal vascular study. Wild. Are you surprised, Lindsay? About the IPH, not yeah. not particularly, but I wonder if there is any other underlying issue going on. If you know she doesn't have a history of hypertension and she doesn't have a history of early onset dementia, so you wouldn't expect you know cortical amyloid that would predispose her to a bleed in the cortex. So I wonder, you know, the Lexapro, I feel like Chris has said it a couple times. So I'm wondering about RCVS. <laughs> or an AVM, or in, an the context AVM of, yeah. in the context of exercise. Absolutely. So the one sort of physiological question mark for me is, if I'd predicted a particular lesion here, it probably wouldn't have been a parenchymal hemorrhage. 
given, for example, the degree of photophobia. But it reminds me that there has been a lot of fascinating and really careful work by some of the top neuroscientists in headache physiology, people like Rami Burstein and Rodrigo Noceda at Harvard, who have looked really carefully into the neuroanatomy of photophobia. And clearly, the demonstration that trigeminal thalamic connections, that the ability of, of trigeminal sensitization to alter thalamic gating of visual input is basically the explanation for that. So here, I would have thought, well, a lot of photophobia, that sounds like CSF blood or something. But no, apparently it was enough to activate her trigeminal vascular system from a parenchymal irritant uh, and yet produce that same phenotype. You know, once again, that the migraine symptom complex is a symptom. It's, a, it's an alarm system that's in place for a reason. And we still aren't entirely clear on why it is that there are so many people for whom that trigger is set so low that whatever it is that sets it off over and over again doesn't appear to be any other underlying pathology. But here, fortunately, everything about the context and the prior history suggested that this was a brand new problem that we needed to identify. So then what? Yeah, so she was admitted to the neurointensive care unit. She had blood pressure was controlled with IV nicardipine. Uh, she went for both an MRI brain with and without contrast and a formal diagnostic angiogram the following day, both of which were actually negative. She additionally, uh, in the following 24 hours, had a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis uh, as a malignancy screen that was also without any occult malignancy. She remained neurologically stable and was transferred out to the floor um, after about 48 hours and actually you know, did quite well in terms of um, her physical ability. Really, she just had that mild sensory deficit in the arm that she presented with, but um, didn't develop any new focal neurologic deficits. But interestingly, you know, the day before she was discharged, um, she was getting up to go to the restroom and had a acute syncopal episode for which a code blue was called, but it was truly syncope. Didn't hit her head and was still neurologically stable afterwards, but we wanted to get a repeat image and sent her to the CAT scanner. And lo and behold, she had a CT, a repeat CT head that showed a new 2.4 centimeter right interparenchymal hemorrhage that was pericolosal after the, the fall. Granted, we didn't know when that had occurred because she still had no neurologic symptoms that matched to that. So we have no, over that time course, we really had no sense of when it happened, but it was interesting that she had this uh, syncopal event. Which did she hemorrhage. have venous imaging? She did. So, sorry, I didn't mention, but the MRI brain that was done uh, initially did include a, an MRV, um, which was also negative. Did her headache complaint change just before or after the fall at all? No, it didn't. She pretty much persistently had a pretty severe headache, you know, despite multiple lines of kind of what I would consider our bread and butter inpatient headache management tools, things like, you know, IV antiemetics, fluids, IV magnesium, blood pressure control, even some kind of not super strong evidence-based treatments like uh, one-time high doses of Depakote or uh, phenytoin, those things also didn't really result in any significant relief for her. So it was pretty much constant, you know, with some fluctuation, but was fairly severe throughout her course. 
Well, and that, so that there's a, there's a bunch of interesting ideas there, but certainly going back to what Lindsay suggested before, the occurrence of now a second bleed certainly strongly suggests to me that RCVS is the right diagnosis here regardless. And it's a reminder too that, you know, the, the relatively small data sets that we have so far that have followed patients with that diagnosis pretty clearly say that it's not rare for the vascular imaging evidence of RCVS to emerge 48 to 72 hours after the ictus. So if you image this wound that day, you know, re-image your vessels that day or the next day, you might have found more clear evidence of it. But I think this is a common problem that we all face is that people who present clinically with something like thunderclap in an ER will get a routine imaging or a vessel imaging study and say, oh, not there, end of story. But if we actually followed those people and re-image them routinely three days later, I think we would detect a much higher rate of this than we actually see or think we see. It's and just to clarify for everyone who's listening, RCVS is reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that point too, because she came in late in the day. She was working out in the early evening. So when she first came in, as you alluded to, I think she got this rapid imaging, but it was the evening. So a lot of her studies was, as I mentioned, delayed until the next day. However, this syncopal episode happened early in the morning, kind of around eight, nine, when we were rounding. Um, and she actually did go for a repeat diagnostic angiogram within two hours of the repeat bleed happening. And it did show that she had focal stenosis throughout her vertebrobasilar system you know, in, you know, kind of a not significant, not a generalized pattern, but yeah, very focal and very segmental throughout various different vessels. So as you alluded to, I think the presumptive diagnosis was uh, RCVS. And it was a lesson for me because it was one of those things, as Lindsay alluded to, I brought up the Lexapro multiple times, but that uh, serotonergic drugs can actually induce or cause a higher risk of RCVS. And so although she had been on the medication for a long time, because she really didn't have any other risk factors, she wasn't a hypertensive patient typically. She didn't really fit the typical epidemiologic pattern, which is a typical like younger woman. It was assumed that uh, perhaps her SSRI had played at least some role in her presentation, and so therefore uh, it was stopped. Afterwards, did well. She went to um, rehab given just some general hospitalized deconditioning, but was back to her baseline within several weeks and has been followed by a stroke clinic without repeated events and no residual headache uh, resolved after several um, weeks, but interestingly did not develop any residual headache syndrome uh, after that point. And despite bilateral lesions, didn't have any pseudobulbar affect or what have you? Nope. They were biparietal, so interestingly. So... And so you mentioned that, you know, 40th wedding anniversary did, was there ever any further history that suggested that there had been an excessive amount of, or an unusual amount of drinking or any other exposure associated with that? No, no. So the anniversary I think had been like several weeks or a month prior to that. It was just the gift that they had decided to purchase for that. And then it took them several weeks to actually use the, or like finally set up. So, but interesting social piece of history for why they were working out. Well, and from anyone my age, it's a great example that it's not a good idea to start exercising too late in your life. <laughs> so, Dr. Gottschalk, as we wrap up here, what, what pearls uh, should people know about RCVS? Well, I think that that idea that, that thunderclap headache, the idea of maximal intensity of headache uh, 
even for a patient with an established primary headache history, migraine or otherwise, should always be a trigger for evaluating an underlying cause. And whereas most of us, understandably, sort of make the immediate jump of thunderclap means subarachnoid hemorrhage, fine. Over a large number of studies, the, the real number there is that it's probably 30% of patients with a clinical presentation of thunderclap who ultimately are diagnosed with subarachnoid hemorrhage. So it's a major player, but it is by no means the majority. So then the question is, what else? And RCVS should absolutely be in the differential there. And then this whole discussion about the delayed nature of the imaging findings means if you suspect it, you can't discard the diagnosis simply because the first study is non-diagnostic, that that's worth pursuing. Uh, and once again, this you know general medical concept, but no less true in headache, if you have a really clear picture of what the the typical natural history and typical range of symptoms are for migraine, then as soon as you see a story like this, you say, okay, well, whatever this is, it's probably not migraine because it doesn't fit that bill. And a simple mnemonic like SNOOP will get you there even faster. And then you're off and running in the right direction. Yeah. So uh, a really great case. Thanks everybody for participating. I just want to sort of emphasize a few more pearls. So one, right from the beginning, uh, Dr. Gottschalk, you mentioned that we often see a comorbidity between uh, psychiatric issues and particularly depression and anxiety with patients with chronic migraine. And I think it's helpful to remember that those may actually share a common underlying uh, pathophysiology as opposed to just being people with headaches are depressed or people who are depressed get headaches. And then you mentioned a couple of times the mnemonic SNOOP. And for those listeners who hadn't heard it, I just wanted to say it all out loud. The way I learned it was two SNOOP4 meaning two S's and four P's, uh, but otherwise NOO in the middle. So the S's would be uh, systemic symptoms and any secondary risk factors. The N would be any neurologic findings other than headache, so focal neurologic deficits or altered mental status. Uh, the first O would be uh, onset of this headache type in somebody who is of older age. The second O being a rapid onset, so a thunderclap or onset over one to two minutes. And then the four P's being positionality, so either worse with lying down or worse with standing up. Uh, progressive in nature, getting worse maybe without remitting or becoming more severe over time. Now precipitated by certain maneuvers, particularly Valsalva or things that could increase intracranial pressure. And then lastly, the big one that you mentioned being papilledema. And that's the last point I wanna emphasize is we always uh, try to remind our students and residents that the fundoscopic exam is crucial really in any page, patient with visual or headache complaints. And I, sh I think we should all consider it part of our neurologic screening exam, because it really is the only way to directly examine uh, nervous tissue with the, the retina being the final or the terminus of the cranial nerve two. So with that, I'll, I'll say thank you to everyone who participated and uh, we'll see you next episode. Thanks again, everybody. It was a real pleasure and thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks guys. Good case.